love to be going in and out. Okay, I'm in now. Hopefully I won't go out. Um, and she's traveling with me. I'm doing a lot of conferences and that kind of thing this summer, but she's, uh, she's up in Philadelphia with some family, and she sends her, sends her regards uh, and wishes that she could be here. Um, I just use a handheld. Is that right? Let's just do that. when the devil fell out of heaven with all those demons, a third of them fell into audio stuff, you know, that's what they, so that's, it always happens, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I told you, we, we celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary, we, we met in college, uh, in fact, this is a true story, I was, uh, um, I came back on campus the summer between my soph my freshman and sophomore year, because about two weeks before I got back on campus, I broke up with my high school sweetheart. I mean, well, the truth of the matter is, girlfriend kicked me to the curb. And can you imagine anybody getting rid of all of this? But uh, said, yes, I can. Um, so I came back on campus, and this is a true story. I, I was in my dorm room praying. True story. First, first day back on campus, in my dorm room praying. God, no more women. They mess you up every time. I'm just, you know, I'm hurting. I need to heal. Just you and me, Jesus, this semester. You know, I'm going to stay focused on my books and on my relationship with God, not be distracted or deterred or disrupted in any way. Just, you know. And so people who know me know that when my mind is made up, I can be fairly focused. And uh, so I got up off my knees and walking down the street to, to one of the buildings on campus, and my mind filled with this deep-seated, stalwart, single-minded commitment to Jesus, not to be distracted or disrupted in any way. And then I get to this one building, open the door, and... Uh, I get to the top of the stairs, and I see this young lady that's new on campus, and I don't know what happened. I just got healed instantly. <laughs> I mean, it was a miracle, an encounter, my brother. And uh, so, <laughs> and, uh, and she was, she, you know, she was new on campus, and my mama taught me to be hospitable to strangers. And so I introduced myself. I said, I'm Crawford Loritz. What's your name? She said, I'm Karen Williams. I said, well, I'm your tour guide. And so I've been showing around for, for 50 years. So, uh, yeah, but that, that's basically a true story. And uh, <laughs> by the way, I want to get something out of the way here quickly. Anybody here tired or sleepy still? Just tell the truth. Okay, I see a few hands go up. Here's the deal with me. You, you got to stay awake on Brendan, but you don't have to stay awake on me, okay? Um, I slept on the best of them, so what goes around comes around. And so if, 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 you, if you are sleepy, if you're tired, listen, 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 don't fight it. That's disgusting. I can see far more than you think. I, you know, no, don't do that. Just yield. Go to sleep. And we've got some benches free up here. You just do whatever you need to do, man. But don't do one of these two things. Don't do like this. That's distracting. And by all means, please don't do like this. Pretending as if you're reading or praying. Now we got character issues. That's lying. So just, just go ahead and go to sleep. And if, you're, if your spouse is next to them, don't do this and hit them if they're sleeping. Then they're going to speak in tongues and disrupt everybody. So just do what you need to do. 
We've had one, one incredible year, haven't we? A lot of disruption in our lives. And all of us have taken gut punches this past year. I mean, the combination of, oh, you talk about a perfect storm. Pandemic, an election, racial tension, jobs lost, personal tragedies. All of these things has knocked the snot out of us. And we've all been there. What's going to happen next? What can happen next? And a lot of us are experiencing the residual impact of all of that. But I want to talk a little bit about today how not to be branded by discouragement. And we've all met people who have this negative haze over them. Folks who are, who are exceedingly self-protective. Um, who see the downside, the south side of everything. And quite frankly, it's just, it's just a, a symptom, an indication that they're afraid to hope again. They're afraid to trust again. They're afraid to believe the best again. And so they're branded by the negative. How do we not be like that? I don't mean I don't be I don't mean becoming superficially optimistic, um, untethered from reality. But how do we not be like that, Father? In the name of Your Son, we pray that You'd help us today. Um, nobody needs to hear my miscellaneous ramblings about anything, but God, we need to hear everything You have to say to us. So, Spirit of the living God, arrest our attention, capture our wandering thoughts and minds. Give us the ability to listen and not lose any of the spiritual equity in this moment. Thank you for what you will do in Jesus' name. Amen. The question in life is not whether or not you're going to be discouraged. All of us are going to get the wind knocked out of us. That's just, that's just life, L-I-F. And it's a, it's a dumb thing to think that you can come up with some type of formula that will protect you from stuff. We control categorically absolutely nothing. High control people are more susceptible to this discouragement and, and depression because they're laboring under the false assumption that they can control every eventuality. And you set yourself up for catastrophic problems. So you can't do that. Let me differentiate between three words here that we sometimes use interchangeably, but they're, they're, they're significantly different. Disappointment, discouragement, and depression. Disappointment is just what it means. I mean, an expectation is not being met. We get disappointed every day. Somebody didn't return the phone call. You know, you didn't respond on time. This didn't happen. I was looking for this to take place in the meeting. That didn't take place in the meeting. This didn't do, or whatever. Too many people in the line at the bank or whatever the deal is. We get this a guard variety. Of, you know, you just got an expectation. It doesn't mean that you're down. doesn't mean that you're discouraged. doesn't mean that you're depressed. It just means life. It, that just didn't happen. So that's part of life. Disappointment. Expectation has not been met. Let me jump over discouragement to depression. I don't want to say too much about this because it's above my pay grade. I'm not a clinical psychologist. Uh, but depression is a very significant problem. It's different from discouragement. Uh, there's clinical depression and then there's circumstantial depression. But what they all have, in, what both has in common is that you're thrust beneath the hope line. 
The signature of depression is that you, you, hope is eluding you. You, you can't, you, 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 you can't hope again. And let me just say parenthetically, if, if you're struggling with depression, you got to force yourself to do what you don't want to do. And that is to get help. To get some help. So I'm not talking about depression. Discouragement is in the middle. Discouragement means that the wind has been knocked out of you. You're not, you know, it's more than your garden variety disappointment. You still got a, you, you still got some hope there, but you're dragging anchor. It's the, oh boy. It's a text message that you get. Where'd that come from? The email that you get. So the question is not whether or not I'm going to be discouraged, but what do I do when it comes knocking on my door and trespassing my domain? What do I do? Now, hear me on this. I don't mean to sound like a locker room coach. But one of the most important lessons you can learn in life and one of the most important things you can teach your children early on is that we all have got to learn how to take an emotional punch. I don't mean to sound like a locker room coach, but you have to learn how to take an emotional punch. That's reality. So what do you do? Hear me, this is counterintuitive. I have discovered that it's the choices and decisions that you make during the times in which you are discouraged that will determine whether or not you're going to be branded by the circumstances or you're going to be healthy in the midst of them. Now, what I'm saying to you does not square with our culture today because we live, and I'm going to say some more about this in a few moments, we live at the emotional level. We really do. Emotions are not wrong, and I'll say something about this in a moment, but it is, it is the mind and the will that forms the banks of the river, that river of emotions. And it's, it's thinking right. And acting right that produces health in the midst of challenge and crisis. It's the will. The critical question is, what decisions or choices are you making when, di when discouragement knocks on your door, when bad news visits your domain, when the wind is knocked out of you? What decisions are you going to make? Now, I don't mean to sound listy here today, but I've discovered that there are five critical decisions that Crawford, you need to make when discouragement come knocking on your door. Now, by the way, when preachers say there are five or seven or six at this time, there's probably more than five, probably more than six, probably more than seven. But I would suggest to you that these five are the lowest common denominator. These, you got to do these five things. When your world is rocked, when you get bad news, you got to make these five critical choices. The first choice that you need to make when discouragements come 
discouragement comes knocking on your door, trespassing your domain, messing up your vision, messing up your plans, the very first choice you have to make is that, number one, you have to choose truth. You have to choose truth. Now, I mean truth in two ways. Uh, first, truth about the situation. Truth about the situation. I have learned painfully over the years that uh, when I get some bad news, my the first thing I need to be careful of is my reaction. I got wait long enough so that I don't react, but I, so that so that I don't react, but I do respond. There's a difference between the two, and normally for me, it's a good night's sleep. Because you got to you got you got you got you got to see it for what it really is. What's the truth about all of this? And often my feelings will exaggerate the, the reality of the circumstances. What's the truth? What's the truth? Sometimes it's as bad as it is, and it might be worse than you thought. But more often than not, it's not. But the second thing, and this is the most significant thing, is I've got I've to go vertical. Meaning, meaning, what does God say? What does God say? What does the Word of God say? about how I re should respond to this. Um, man, the Word of God teaches us that there, 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 there's hope and truth. There's hope and objective truth. Not necessarily in my circumstances, but there ho there's hope and objective truth. Psalm, uh, what is it, 119 verse 50 says, This is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Psalm 119 verse 143 says, Trouble and anguish have found me out. But your commandments are my delight. Hear me on this. One of my biggest problems I, as, as a pastor, I pastored a church, a wonderful church, a Bible-believing church, and great. But one of my problems, as I've traveled across the country, I'm alarmed at the fact that we still are wrestling with, with a severe epidemic in our churches called biblical illiteracy. Most of us, most of us keep referring to the Bible as a point of reference, but not as a context of our lives. And therein lies our problem. You have got to decide, you've got to decide, not only do you believe the Bible, not only do you believe objective truth, but this truth is to be your life. Psalm 1, Psalm 1, most scholars believe Psalm 1 is like the introduction to a great book. It is the introduction to this anthology of worship, which is the Psalms. And the Psalmist begins by driving choice. Blessed is the man who does not. But what does he do? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. The Hebrew word meditate uh, could have been translated dull sound. It implies immersion. Immersion, that the Word of God has got to inform my behavior, inform, hear, hear me on this, hear me on this, inform my feelings, inform my responses. So the very first thing you do when the snot is knocked out of you, you, you took a gut punch. You got to open the book. You got to open the, this is God's voice. You got to let him speak to you. Better objectively say, Crawford, what's true about this situation? And then what does God say 
in terms of my thinking, feelings, and responses to what I'm going through. So, first you choose the truth. The second thing you have to do when discouragement comes trespassing your domain, messing with your life, upsetting the apple cart. I mean, you're going to think I'm absolutely nuts. But the second thing that you have to do, first you choose truth. Secondly, you choose. You choose joy. Joy is an involuntary response. How do I choose an involuntary response? If it's an emotion response, it's a, no. That's not what the Bible teaches. Joy isn't a command. It, it, listen, your emotions, our emotions, they're great passengers, but they're horrible drivers. Horrible drivers. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Over in Philippians chapter, chapter 4, context here, you know where Paul wrote this book from, right? He was in jail. And we ain't, we ain't talking some five-star prison camp, okay? He's in jail. He's extracted from his ministry. Ultimately, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later on, as I mentioned 2 Timothy this week, ultimately he would die. And so he's not in some sweet oasis of a situation and so he's writing the church at Philippi because they want to know how he's doing and he's telling them how he's doing and, and <laughs> he, he gets over to chapter 4 and he says in verse 4 listen listen the imperative mood he says rejoice in the Lord always and again I will say rejoice I think he's being redundant here but the, the ellipsis is that no I haven't lost my mind I haven't lost my mind when I told you to rejoice always no I mean it Again, I say rejoice. Choose to rejoice. Choose to rejoice. It's a command. You see, our joy rejoicing have to be independent of our circumstances. Did you hear what I just said? Did you hear what I just said? Our joy and rejoicing have to be independent of our circumstances. I didn't say, it's not denial. I'm going to get to this in a moment. It's not denial. It's not saying that this didn't really happen. It's not saying this doesn't even affect me. But it has to be independent of our circumstances. Now, this is fairly consistent with the Apostle Paul. I, I believe Paul may have had in mind a uh, uh, flashback as to how the church got started. When he and, he and Silas was there, they came over to Macedonia, and he recruited Silas to come with him. And Silas thought, he was, this is a nice summer gig here, man. We're going to go. Over here to Macedonia, visit Philippi, you know, some missionary trip, you know, share the gospel a little bit, check out the restaurants there and have a nice time and, you know, it'd be good. What happens to these dudes? They're out there sharing the gospel and tick off some people. They get thrown in jail. The scriptures say that they were beaten over in Acts chapter 16. Now, you got to... <laughs> One of the problems with the Bible is that we've got history, and with history, sometimes we, we lose the emotional impact of what actually took place. Let's say these dudes were beaten. I don't think they were just roughed up. I don't think they were just pushed around. I think they were beaten. Contusions, blood dripping, swollen eyes, busted lips, this all this, all this kind of stuff. They're beaten and thrown in jail. 
Now, if I'm silent, I'm in jail with Paul. I'm just going, hey, hey, man, I just signed for this. Go, dude, no, I mean, I mean you told me, and, and come on, man. You, you, and maybe, maybe Paul was saying, what, what, why is he signing for me? You know what they're doing in jail? They're singing and praying. They are worshiping. Hear me on this. Joy has to be anchored in that which cannot be affected. Did you hear what I just said? Your joy has to be anchored in that which cannot be affected. Therein is the reason why he could say to them, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. This is a typical signature of Paul. He gives exposition of that in the last paragraph of Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of God? You kidding me? Seriously? You can't affect my destination. You can't affect God's presence in my life. You can't take away his power. So you've got to choose not to be superficial, Crawford. All this hurts, it hurts like the dickens. And I'm not telling you not to be sad. I'm not telling you not to cry. But what I'm telling you is to lift your eyes above the shadows. What I'm telling you is what Brendan said a few moments ago. He's on his throne, and nobody's going to take him off his throne. So you choose joy. And joy is a choice. It is a decision. To not choose joy is to succumb to idolatry. You choose joy. So what do you do when discouragement comes trespassing your domain, messing up your life? What do you do when you open up your inbox and you can't just check everything? What do you do? Well, you choose truth. You choose joy. But thirdly, you choose faith. You choose faith. Hmm. Hebrews chapter 11, that great text on faith with all those biographical snapshots. The text begins with a thesis statement in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and the rest of the chapter is an exposition of what the writer of Hebrews says in the Hebrews 11, 1. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And by the way, I wrote a book here a few years back called Unshaken. It was a series of messages I gave at a church on, on faith. You know one of the hardest things I had when I did that series of messages and when I wrote that book, the hardest one, the hardest challenges? We make an assumption that the Bible defines faith. The Bible never defines faith. Now, this is, you say, well, you just read a definition. No, it's a description of faith. But what I've come to, this is, uh, if you read the book in that series, I, what, I, what I conclude is this is my definition of faith based upon the preponderance of of experiences of great men and women of God, that faith is God confidence. God confidence. God confidence. And you choose it. You choose to allow your, to, to align your behavior to what you know about God. 
Again, what Brendan said, that he's sitting on his throne, that he is transcendent, that he never changes. He doesn't sit in the hooks or take Tylenol. There's nothing happens under, under, but you choose that. You see, faith in the Bible is twofold. Faith in the Bible is, is not denying, denial. And, and by the way, and forgive me for saying this, and I, this is not typical of me. I never use, I try not to use a public platform to be critical of other believers or, or, or folks, that kind of thing. I think that's it's a little cheap. However, I will make an exception here because I think this is damnable and devastating. Be careful of watching some of these dudes on TV that, that tell you that faith is denying the reality of what you're going through. That is never taught in the Bible. Faith is not a deni- it's not denial. It is not denial. You know, you people going around and say, I ain't sick, I ain't sick. Well, look, man, you got 105 fever and you threw up. Who, who did that, Casper the Friendly Ghost? <laughs> See how stupid that is? I ain't claiming that I'm broke. Well, you can't pay the mortgage, you can't buy the food, and you can't pay for the car. I, that That's broke, brother. So that, you see how silly and stupid that stuff is? Faith in the Bible never, ever, 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 ever denies the reality of bad stuff. Faith in the Bible defies it. It defies it. It looks through it to see a God that's greater than. It refuses the grand sovereignty to the negative. It sees God as being in control. And so the confidence is rock solid. It defies it, but it doesn't deny it. However, faith also in the Bible is defiance, but it's also desperation. This is, again, where theological terms uh, collide with, uh, it, it almost sounds like a contradiction to, to secular explanations of desperation. Desperation from a secular perspective is anchored in despair. But nes- desperation in the Bible is not despair. I know it's the same root, but it's not despair. See, Despair is hopelessness. Despair is, I, I, what are we going to do? It's all gone. Oh, it's, it's going down the tube. It, it's, it's all that stuff. No. Desperation in the Bible, desperation in the Bible has to do with urgency and passionate focus to get to Jesus, to get to the solution. And by the way, it's the old line, we often turn to God when our foundations are shaking only to discover it's God who's shaking them. Classic illustration of this is what? Over in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verses 42 to 48, the woman with the issue of blood. Now, yeah, sometimes you got to admire in these stories. We hear these stories so often. You've got to sit and admire in them, marinate in them. For 12 years, this woman has spent everything that she had. No need to go into the gory details of all of this. But she was bleeding and hemorrhaging for 12 years. The reason why she had to get to Jesus is because she had spent everything she had. Her only hope was Jesus. And the text says that she, she, she just felt, if I could just, if I could, if I could just of his garment. You know why she said that? She said that because the Levitical code says that she was untouchable. And she probably was a Jewish woman. She couldn't let people see her. 
coming in contact with the rabbi. My historical uh, context is correct. This takes place during the first probably year and a half, two years of our Lord's earthly ministry where all the groupies are still going with him. Great crowds of people are around him. And all these people want a piece of Jesus. The disciples are probably doing crowd control. And this lady is repeatedly through the crowd slipping up. Just give me just if I could just touch just touch his fringe of his garment. And all these people are bumping up against Jesus. The lady trying to be inconspicuous. demon. And, and Jesus said, Jesus said, who touched me? And I think this is one of the most hilarious times. Because Peter goes, uh, <laughs> I don't want to give a wrong answer, but um, there's been a lot of people bumping up against you. And Jesus says in so many words, no, 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 no. Don't, don't get it twisted. They handled me. She touched me. Faith. 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 Touches the heart. Allow the stress, struggle, and strain, the pain, and the agony, the bad news to drive you to Jesus. Little parentheses here. I don't think the average Christian in this country is desperate enough. We just have too many resources. We're too competent for our own good. And it is and it is fed a certain entitlement. I see it. I see it in my church. Our church is a great church. Don't get me wrong. It's fed a certain entitlement. And every once in a while, God has to subtle light, put the, put us in a little, 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 little area to remind us, you always, always, always need to bring your burden. Even when you get arrogant and full of yourself, I'm still the one that's taking care of you. Just like that. So, what do you do? When discouragements come banging on your door, this wasn't on your list of things to do today. Well, you, you got some decisions to make, Crawford. You don't make these decisions, Jack, you're going you, to be in the fetal position for sure. You, you have to choose the truth. You have to choose joy. This is a call to choosing faith. And the fourth one, give me this, that you have to choose community. You, 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 you have to choose community. There's no such thing as an independent Christian. There's not one. 
There's no such thing as an independent. Who is it? Chuck Colson's book, The Lord. Now, he famously said, I don't know if it, if it originated with him or he's quoting someone else, but there's some truth to this. It says, you can't have God as your father and not have the church as your mother. That's, that's good theology. We were, we, were, we were born for relationship. When we're born again, we were placed into the body of Christ. There can be no healthy sanctification apart from healthy spiritual relationship. Horizontal. And that's the reason why in Galatians, what is it? Galatians chapter, chapter 6, actually this, 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 this community rests upon two things. Uh, it, it rests upon a companionship, but it also rests upon mutual identification. Companionship, mutual identification. Don't fly solo, companionship. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We need one another. Now, I, I probably, and this is like probably too much information here, but uh, most people think uh, because I speak to large crowds, our church is a fairly sizable place, and I'm always with a lot of people. Most people mistakenly think that I am an extrovert. I really am not. Now, this is, this is crazy, and I know, you know, I've taken these tests through the years a gazillion times. I'm an introvert that loves people. I do. I, I don't dislike people. There's some people on that spectrum who are introverts that can't stand people. I love people. I love being with people. I love interacting with people. But technically, if, if you mean where do I get my energy from, I don't get my energy from people. I mean, I, when I go to speak someplace, I'm low maintenance, Jack. You don't have to give me the key to the city. You don't have to show me all around. You don't have to sit and hold my hand. You don't have to do any of that kind of stuff, man. Just put me in a place that ain't got too many roaches, man, and I'm cool. You know, just good book and this kind of thing. And so my natural tendency, my natural tendency when I take a gut punch of this kind of thing is to pull back. Now, that's, that's okay for a while. For a while. But let me tell you something. You might want to write this down. Isolation inevitably breeds distortion. Isolation inevitably breeds distortion and exaggeration. And you you got to be very, very careful. Yeah, you might need to pull back, take a sabbatical, take some time off and this kind of thing. But then you better rush to people because relationship has a way of contextualizing your emotions. They have a way of recalibrating your thinking. They have a way of giving a broader context to you. And we need one another. And listen, listen, I, this is a little hobby horse of mine. I, you know, as a pastor, this used to frustrate me to no end. I pastored a church in a fairly, well, it's a very high-end section of Atlanta. People had a lot of resources, a lot of context, used to solving their own problems or paying somebody to do it for them or this kind of thing. And one of the things that used to bug me to no end is this whole image management nonsense. These folks would be hurting, hurting, too embarrassed to share. And so by the time you hear about it, the, the mess is glowing in the dark. We need to humble ourselves and say, hey, look, man, I'm going through a rough patch right now. Have some people in your life where you can say, hey, look, I'm struggling. I took a gut punch. I need you to pray with me. 
so this companionship, but then secondly, under this whole banner of, 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 of choosing community is identification. And I don't have, for, for the sake of time, I won't read this, but Romans 12, verses 9 through 16. Paul is talking about the dynamic of identifying with one another in the body of Christ. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. This is part of the problem with some of the racial dynamics in our country. One of the things that's been heartbreaking to me over this past year is seeing the sophomoric, idiotic way that Christians have handled this. The way we have lashed out to one another and the way we judge one another. We've got to stop critiquing one another and start listening to each other. Weeping with those who weep. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. Let somebody weep with you. Let them rejoice with you. Let them feel the hope and the love of the Lord Jesus coming through your heart. Let them see it in your eyes, the windows of your soul. Let them feel it with your arm around them. You see, God allows these hard times to come in order for us to embrace sweet brokenness and humility. God does not use me because I'm the sharpest pencil in the box. You kidding me? Because you have a platform and you've been successful does not mean that you're less needy. Seriously? We're all just a half a step away from stupid. And we need one another. We need one another. So get up off your high horse. Get up off your pretense. Stop the image management nonsense. Run to community. And the fifth and the final decision we need to make when discouragement comes knocking on our door, trespassing our domain. Yeah? Choose truth, choose joy, choose faith, choose community. This is going to sound like a bit of a contradiction. But number five, you have to choose service. There, there are some times in life where you just can't stop. It, you're just in one of those seasons of your life where you've gotten some bad news. But for whatever reason, you, 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 you can't pull back. You just can't get away. You're in a stretch. What are you going to do? I'm going to share something with you here that, uh, and it's not a big secret or anything like that. But some years back, our, our oldest daughter went through a horrible experience. Yeah, and it wasn't her fault. It was something that happened to her. And, um, you know, as a dad, I want to fix it. 
to fix that. It was during that time, because of some of the dynamics of what was going on, it wasn't a pride piece, but it was unwise for Karen and myself to, to share, because it was sort of the dynamics around it, to share this with other people. And there were a number of days on the weekend pulling up to the church, and I had to preach. And I was sitting in my car and the tears streaming down my cheeks. I didn't feel like doing it. I was sitting in the car. I said, Holy Ghost, one more time. Please, one more time. Listen to this great text in Psalm 126. Verse 4. The psalmist says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the, in the Negev. If you've ever been to Israel, the Negev is the southern arid portion of Israel, like streams in the Negev. And then this line, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seeds of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves. The word picture is this. Sometimes you just got to keep putting one foot ahead of the next. You got to keep serving and walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's painful. But your tears become holy fertilizer. You hear me? Your tears become holy fertilizer that will produce a bumper crop. Your greatest impact will come out of faithfulness during painful times. Did you hear what I just said? Did you hear what I just said? Your greatest impact will come through faithfulness during hard and difficult that's where the resilience comes. So who told you to stop? Who told you to stop sharing your faith? Who, who told you to stop serving? You got to keep moving. You got to make the decision. And by the way, if you're here and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, the reason I've been saying all of this is because none of us can do it alone. We were created for him. and We were created for a relationship with him. Perhaps you've been going through a very difficult time, and it's God's, believe it or not, it's God's loving reminder that you were born for me. You were born for a relationship. And Jesus Christ wants to come into your heart and life to give you the strength to forgive you of your sin, to give you strength, and to put you on the path of destiny, the plan that he has for you, to give you abundant life. And all you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I turn from my sin and I trust you as my Savior and Lord. And for those of us who are followers, yeah, keep in mind.
same line during the difficult, hard times. It is the light of Christ that wants to shine in our hearts. Holy Father, thank you for yourself and thank you for your word. And None of us want discouragement. None of us want pain. None of us like the fact that our course is being disrupted. But when it does happen, Lord Jesus, will you help all of us to make the right choices, to choose truth, to choose joy in that which cannot be explained, to choose faith, to choose community, and if it need be, to choose service. Strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.